Howdy folks, Mackenzie Taylor here. Welcome back to the Weekly Roundup podcast. This week, we cover committee hearings in the Texas legislature relating to constitutional carry, George Floyd, police defunding, homeless camping bans, church opening protections, election integrity, and taxpayer-funded lobbying, a myriad of important issues. Hayden Sparks recounts his visit to McAllen to cover a border visit by U.S. Senators. Isaiah Mitchell details bills relating to the Alamo and Cenotaph. Daniel Friend discusses the one-year anniversary of 15 days to slow the spread of COVID. And Brad Johnson gives an update on utility regulator reforms and the state budget. Now, folks, it's springtime in Texas, and there's nothing quite like it. This spring, celebrate our state with a new wine tumbler featuring the first official flag of the Republic of Texas. Claim your wine tumbler at the texan.news forward slash tumbler today. Thanks for listening, folks, and enjoy the rundown. Howdy, folks. Mackenzie Taylor here with Daniel Friend, Hayden Sparks, Isaiah Mitchell, and Brad Johnson at the Texan offices here in Austin. Things really have heated up here at the legislative session, so we have mm-hmm. a lot to cover this week. We're going to start with Brad and Daniel. Y'all specifically covered some very big time committee hearings at the end of last week that were not covered on the podcast. And these topics have carried into this following week. So we figured we'd go ahead and give those just some coverage. Um, Daniel, we'll start with you. Homeland Security and Public Safety, that committee chaired by Chairman James White, had some crazy uh, just movement in terms of legislation last week. And, you know, we'll continue to have movement throughout this next week. Walk us through what happened and, uh, you know, how the timeline shook out. So there were several uh, rather big bills heard in the committee. Uh, And this wasn't just a a big bill. There was the constitutional carry, which lots of conservatives came out for. But before they got to uh, the hearing testimony on the constitutional carry bills, which there were four of those being heard, uh, before they got to that, uh, earlier in the day, they heard uh, several other bills, including uh, the, the other big notable one was the George Floyd Act, uh, which was introduced by Representative Symphonia Thompson. Um, and then also uh, Senator Royce West is introducing its counterpart in the Senate. Uh, but that was heard in the House Homeland Security and Public Safety Committee uh, by Representative Chairman White. And uh, testimony just went on and on and on <laughs> and on. You know, when I... When I came here and hearing about the legislative session, I didn't realize that there was an unlimited number of people who could testify on a bill. I thought, oh, maybe they just like invite people and cap it. Uh, But alas, they do not do that most of the time. I suppose there might be some unusual circumstances where they do, but uh, that was not the case here. So there were hundreds of people who came out to testify both on constitutional carry and on the George Floyd Act and several of the other bills that were being heard as well on that day. So, uh, you know, the hearing started at 11 a.m., went uh, until late later that night, I think, is when they finally got to constitutional carry. And then it kept going until uh, they gaveled out at 539 the next morning. So quite a while. I to be truthful, I did not stay up the whole night. <laughs> Come on, Daniel, slacking yeah. on the job. Um, well, I think it's notable, too, that all four constitutional carry bills actually got a hearing, right? That's an interesting method, yes. especially considering in previous sessions, there's kind of been one con carry bill that is almost, you know, knighted, dubbed the bill that would get the hearing. Maybe only one was filed, whereas this session mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of representatives, you know, file this legislation in hopes that theirs is the one that's passed or yes. even just attention. I want to, to say that there was one other uh, constitutional carry bill that did not appear on the hearing. Um, I'd have to go back and check which one that is or who filed that. It might have been 
one of the same ones. Now, lots of these, these there's four different ones. There was the one filed by Representative Biederman. You had one filed by Representative Hefner, one filed by uh, Chairman White himself. And then you also had one filed by Representative Schaefer, if I didn't say two names twice. And, uh, you know, there's some small differences in each of those, but essentially what all of them would do would be to expand uh, permitless carry in Texas. So most people who can currently who currently can carry a gun, uh, who can currently own a gun in many cases would be able to carry in public places without a license to carry. Uh, I don't think any of these would uh, completely abolish the license to carry program. Uh, in some situations, a license to carry would still be needed under some of the bills. Um, there's variations in them, but yeah, there are four different ones. I think the one that will probably make it all the way through is the one from Chairman White. Uh, it has the, the broadest support as far as people who have signed on to it. Uh, and so it's also with the, the chairman on it and all the other people who signed the other bills or who authored the other constitutional carry bills also joined that one. So that's probably what we'll see going forward. Um, I expect it could be voted out of committee this week uh, or sometime in the future. In 2017, uh, Representative White's uh, constitutional carry bill also passed out of the committee, uh, but was not voted on on the House floor. It got stuck in the calendars committee. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for covering that for us. And I think it was notable, too, that there were, you know, the George Floyd Act and Con Carey both brought two very different, you know, types of activists to the Capitol. Um, I heard one, you know, staffer tell me that there were 700 witnesses coming out to testify for or against different pieces of legislation mm-hmm. in that committee. So a lot of people at the Capitol, um, definitely a long night for for members, for staff, for activists and citizens. Um, Brad, we're going to pivot to you. In the State Affairs Committee, basically all your main beats were heard in one night. So it was quite an evening for you. Walk us through what happened. Yeah, so obviously it's well, it started in the morning as all the committee hearings do. They took a brief break to go to the House floor and they reconvened and went, you know, went the rest of the way. Um, you know, heard earlier in the in the afternoon were some of what Isaiah was watching, religious liberty bills. That's obviously something people care about. There was a lot of testimony, and that kind of drug out the the hearing, um, you know, quite a lot much longer than uh, certainly they were planning on. But the three pieces of legislation that I was watching for specifically were um, uh, kind of it was one of them was recourse for cities that defund their police departments and another one was a prohibition on uh, homeless camping uh, statewide obviously specifically at the city of Austin both of those aiming generally at the city of Austin yes Um, and then last of the night was taxpayer funded lobbying ban that's something that Representative Mates Middleton has. That's has been that's been his baby since uh, he got in the legislature last session. It it failed on the House floor um, because a, a predatory amendment was attacked on. Like it would it nullify it, it exempted half the state or more than half the state. So that failed last session. And it's back up this session, and um, that was the last of of the night. And it went until uh, four a.m. Uh, I not, I didn't stay up for that either. I fell asleep around two thirty. But um, there was a lot of a lot of testimony for each one of those bills, and you know both for and against each of them. One notable exchange was between Collin County Judge Chris Hill and Representative Eddie Lucio. They went back and forth. Uh, if you, 
you know, if that's something that you're interested in, I'd recommend go looking at the tape. Uh, it was on both sides, very interesting exchange. And, um, you know, each person had a lot to say about it. Um, and it was valuable to the conversation, but that was generally the, the state affairs committee hearing. And, um, you know, that was also a marathon. Yeah, certainly. One bill that we've been watching, you know, a lot this legislative session uh, relates to elections. Well, there there are two bills, both one in the House, one in the Senate. Hayden, I want to talk with you a little bit about what happened last week, because there were some big moments that happened in the Texas House and some drama that went down between the chairman, his vice chairman, another member um, and Beto O'Rourke. So some big names yes, being thrown around. The Texas in for House. Sure. Uh, just give us a little bit of an update of where we're at and what happened last week. Well, House Bill 6 is Representative Briscoe Kane's version of the election security legislation that Republicans are proposing. And this bill would add protections for poll watchers, and it would create a number of criminal offenses related to assisting voters illegitimately and trying to tamper with elections or alter uh alter information on documents. But what happened last week, last Thursday, is this bill was slated for consideration, and they took it up as the lunch hour got closer, and there were a number of witnesses that appeared to testify, including former Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who is open about the fact that he's considering a run for governor. He widely publicized a trip from El Paso to Austin and recorded a video in the car and made a big deal of this trip. And when he got here, he ultimately wasn't able to testify. And we'll talk about that in a second. But the vice chair of the committee, Jessica Gonzalez, who is a Democrat from Dallas, was temporarily given control of the committee. So Representative Kane, who is the chair of the elections committee, could speak on behalf of his bill so that he wouldn't be the chairman of the committee, be acting as the chairman and as a speaker on behalf of the bill. So really just as a as a logistical as a logistical note, Gonzalez took control of the committee so that they could she could can she could preside over the questioning of Kane. And that is not, uh, I can't speak to uh, longstanding precedent or anything, but in parliamentary procedure, that's pretty common for a chair to hand off the gavel to somebody else. But anyway, Kane is the, is the chairman of the committee. And as HB6 was being considered, after members of the committee had attempted to, or had finished their questioning, uh, a member of the House who is not a member of the committee attempted to ask Kane questions. And Brad Johnson and I discovered that these individuals had actually discussed this beforehand. Yeah. So the chairman of the committee, Briscoe Kane, and uh, Vice Chair Gonzalez and Representative Collier had all had a discussion and one other state rep named Eddie Eddie Rodriguez had all had a discussion about this via mail um, or they had written communications about this before the committee hearing ever took place. When they actually, when they settled it, uh, Kane indicated that Collier would not be permitted to ask questions from the dais and she could instead testify or submit uh, written testimony. 
And Collier later said that she found that to be condescending and disrespectful because it was it, committee members or, or members of the house are allowed to do that um, already. And that's, that's something they do all the time. Uh, so she took issue with him making it sound like she, she was being given a privilege uh, by Kane extending that invitation. So in the end, Gonzalez tried not to, she attempted to, to retain control and not relinquish the gavel after Kane had requested her to return the chair. And really he doesn't have to ask for that. That's not something he needs permission to. It's his committee. Um, so ultimately um, he retook the gavel um, and then testimony did not proceed on the bill. Yeah, certainly. And it actually ended in kind of a snafu, um, that particular hearing. And, you know, hundreds of folks had come down to, you know, testify on this bill. And it was really a mistake, a procedural mistake. Um, earlier that same week, the Senate Democrats had tagged the Senate version, which Daniel can talk about. But, um, and similarly, you know, people who came to Austin to testify on for or against that legislation in the Senate did not have the opportunity to do so. Um, and then this time, you know, the chairman of the of the committee in the House with the the House counterpart, uh, you know, made a mistake. He did, uh, and it was a it was a parliamentary mistake. So he uh, sent the committee uh, to lunch without setting a time for them to come back, and um, in doing so, he adjourned the committee for the day. So based on the rules because of the way he recessed for lunch, they weren't able to come back. He had closed out the day and because of their requirements for giving notice for committee meetings, um, this is, and this is not, this is not part of what Brad was able to find out later, but based on, uh, the rules of the house, they, they cannot, there are certain things they can't reverse. And, um, Chairman Kane was unable to call the committee back. He, he it had to be um, put off until today, in fact. And they actually did take up HB6 today, and he continued to take questions. And Chair Collier from uh, last week was, was able to ask questions. Uh, but this time, um, Chairman Kane actually did not give the gavel to Gonzalez. He gave it to... Uh, Representative Travis Clardy, Republican of Nacogdoches, who is an, a member of the committee. Uh, but after Gonzalez did not relinquish control last week, uh, Kane this week decided not to give her the gavel back. Um, and so the, any minute now, they're they are about to resume, as we're recording, they're On about Thursday. to resume yeah. uh, their deliberations. All sorts of spicy stuff. Um, well, Hayden, thanks for covering that for us. Daniel, let's pivot to the Senate version, SB7. What's new? What's new with that bill? Well, that bill is now going over to the House of Representatives. It was just passed by the Texas Senate in a party-line vote on, well, Thursday night or, or no, sorry, Wednesday night or Thursday morning, depending on <laughs> when you count the end of one day and the, the start of another. <laughs> um, so they brought the legislation to the floor on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, they had a long, very robust debate, I suppose you could say, uh, on the legislation. 
uh, obviously this has been a, a very controversial, probably the most controversial partisan topic that we've seen in the legislature this session Yeah, uh, as far as uh, Democrats and Republicans butting heads. And so we continue to see that uh, throughout the the Senate floor procedure on the on Senate Bill Seven, uh, which is essentially the the Senate's version of HB Six. Uh, there's some some significant differences, but I'm sure the end result uh, there will be a lot of overlap uh, with whatever they both chambers finally vote on. Uh, and so when this was brought to the Senate floor, obviously uh, there were lots of Democrats standing up and speaking out against the legislation, uh, essentially saying that this is voter suppression is going to intimidate uh, voters and dissuade people from voting, uh, whereas Republicans are saying, no, this is some steps that we need to take to secure elections, make sure that we tighten down uh, any possible uh, way for people to commit voter fraud. Uh, and so you just have those those two different uh, views on elections kind of clashing and um, right along party lines. So they had this whole process, uh, but they did introduce a quite a quite a few amendments. Um, I think there were twenty nine in total uh, that were voted on, or twenty eight, with three of those being modified with other amendments, uh, and that was done all throughout Wednesday night and Thursday morning. All sorts of interesting timelines there to keep track of. Um, so the am- amendment process, how convoluted did that end up being? So it it went on, dragged on for a little bit. Um, as far as the amendments that actually passed, there were, I believe, a dozen that went through um, that finally got put into the bill. Now, the most notable one of those was from Senator Hughes, who is the author of the bill. He's the chairman of the state Senate Affairs Committee, Senate State Affairs Committee, which is what the bill went through. And uh, he put forward an amendment, a perfecting amendment that had uh, some different changes that were like, this is the final version that they want. Uh, So that one was obviously passed. And then there were uh, about 11 other amendments uh, that passed. A, A few of those came from Democrats. Uh, Senator Menendez had an amendment that would uh, continue to allow people who are in line to vote when polls close to remain in line um, so that they continue to vote. If, they, if they're there at 7.30 or 7, 6.59, they get in line and the polls close at 7, they can t- continue waiting in line until they vote mm-hmm. and they cast their ballot. Yeah. Um, Senator West had an amendment um, that was uh, originally – um, it would have required some more additional training for poll watchers as well as for them to take an oath uh, saying that they would not disrupt the election process uh, because one of the things that the bill does is kind of expand uh, the protections and rights of poll watchers. One of the things that uh, Texas poll watchers cannot currently do is uh, have any sort of recording uh, at the poll to you know prove if they see something um, kind of – unlawful right uh, they they don't have any proof of that they can just have their word and so to kind of help them in that senator hughes and uh, the republicans have put forward this proposal that would allow them to record uh as long as they don't record any part of this the secret voting process not recording people's ballot uh, but democrats have said that's going to intimidate voters if you have poll watchers uh who are poll watchers are are there from the parties the party Parties and candidates are the ones who have the poll watchers. And so since they're partisan, uh, Democrats are arguing that they're, those partisan poll watchers are going to intimidate voters. 
And so uh, they wanted to have some additional constraints on poll watchers uh, to try and, and make sure there's no intimidation. So that amendment uh, would have required uh, more training procedures and also an oath that they wouldn't disrupt it. And Senator Hughes, the author, said, well, you know, I would, the oath part I'm totally fine with. The training is a little bit burdensome. So like if you go and take down this this amendment and bring it back with just the oath, then we'll pass that. So that's what Senator West did in the wee hours of the morning, uh, go change this amendment, and they came back and voted that in later. Um, so those are some of the big amendments that passed through. There were also several, uh, Senator Bob Hall had, um, I think four or five, no, there's more than that. There's like five or six uh, amendments that he had that passed through. Uh, Senator Don Buckingham had one. Um, and also Senator Zaffarini was the other Democrat who had one uh, that would have kind of uh, lessened the the restraints on uh, certifications of disabilities for people applying for a, a mail ballot under that qualification. Got it. So 12 minutes passed. Uh, late into the night, then they finally got to uh, passage to engrossment and then final passage, and those were all party line votes. I like it. Well, Daniel, thanks for covering that for us so thoroughly. Isaiah, we're coming to you. Another big committee hearing in the Texas House last week related to particularly pandemics in relation to church reopenings or just openings in general. There was some contention over that during the you know coronavirus pandemic that we're still experiencing <clears throat> now. Um, what were the proposals exactly? Sure. So they are overlapping but distinct. In general, they are meant to keep churches open and other religious organizations open um, during declarations of disaster like the pandemic. One of them is a constitutional amendment, which works a bit differently than than bills do, but uh, that is about the size of it. Got it. So how did the you know how did the testimony end up going? Was it, were a lot of folks in favor, opposed? What was the overall flavor? Uh, they were mostly in favor of the religious groups being able to stay open, in favor of these bills. I saw two citizens and one governmental official testify against the proposals. And uh, that one guy was Councilman Lee Kleinman of Dallas, representing Dallas, actually. Um, he made that clear officially. And uh, so he spoke against the bills. His argument in general was um, that in times of certain disasters, he brought up tornadoes as one example, Cities need to be able to enforce their building codes to keep people out of unsafe areas. And this is where, um, I mean, he introduced himself to speak against Shaheen's HB 525 and Leach's uh, constitutional amendment, HDR 72. I'll get into the differences between those in, you know, here in a minute. But um, uh, the chairman, Chris Patty, had to correct him and say he can only speak on one at a time. And that ended up kind of mattering. But um, Kleinman argued on behalf of Dallas that uh, if there's a disaster, you need to be able to enforce health codes and things like that. So if a tornado hits, you've got to be able to tape off the area so that people don't go in and have services. And um, Shaheen's House Bill 525 would protect all religious activities on the part of religious groups. And Leach's HDR 72 would only extend to services. So one of the members on the committee pointed that out to Kleinman and said, um, why would you testify against HB 525 when churches could have activities like, you know, a food bank or some kind of door-to-door -door thing or, or what have you that doesn't involve going into their building. How would that affect, you know, your argument here about building codes? And so that, that ended up mattering. Um, I mentioned those two specifically because those were the ones that garnered the most debate and discussion. 
but we've also got um, Scott Sanford's HB 1239, which would prohibit government agencies or public officials from closing places of worship. That one doesn't mention activities like Shaheen's does. And Tenderholt's HB 1691, which would forbid government officials actually naming the governor and the presiding officers of governing bodies specifically from restricting the free exercise of religion, banning religious services, or limiting the operating hours of faith groups. Got it. So, you know, how were churches affected during the pandemic? What kind of issues are these bills trying to address? The decentralized nature of the state's response to the pandemic makes that question a bit hard to answer because it was different from place to place. We know that churches were shut down in McKinney, for example, where the courts opened them back up thanks to legal action, and uh, in Fort Worth for a brief time. At the state level, they weren't really touched. Abbott's orders didn't call out churches, and uh, Paxton sided with churches in his legal opinions. So from statewide officials, churches were, were pretty well free. It was at the local level with uh, mayors and, and county officials that from time to time and place to place, they were actually uh, forced to shut down when pandemic panic kind of rose to its peak. Yeah, pandemic panic. I like that. Um, well, thank you for covering that for us, Isaiah. Hayden, we're coming to you. Last week, you had the opportunity to actually go down and be present for a big border press conference wherein, you know, Texas two senators and 17 others were in Texas touring the border. Walk us through what happened there. Well, I did go down to the McAllen area, and the congressional delegation included Senator Cruz, Senator Cornyn, and 17 other Republican senators from throughout the country, uh, from as far away as Alaska. Uh, Senator Dan Sullivan from Alaska was there, uh, Mike Braun from Indiana, and a host of others. They were there to tour the border, and... I was there for the press event that followed their boat tour of the Rio Grande River, not the, obviously not the whole river, but parts of the river. And the, it concluded with a press event at Anzaldúas Park in, in Mission, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, not Mission, but Anzaldúas. I'm really not sure how to pronounce that. Um, but the the press conference was very forceful, and they discussed the different ways that illegal immigration is impacting their states. They talked about the drug trafficking and the, um, the harms to Central American children that are occurring, as well as the vulnerabilities that our southern border currently has, especially in terms of the enforcement capabilities of U.S. Customs and Border Protection right now, not because they aren't doing their jobs or doing their best with what they have, but because they're overwhelmed. And one, uh, more than one senator highlighted the fact that the cartels are sophisticated in the way that they are sending people to the border to distract, well, not distract, but to take away resources uh, from Customs and Border Protection so that while they're dealing with humanitarian issues, um, other people with criminal intent are able to get uh, into the U.S. Um, and they also made a pretty grim discovery while they were on their tour and that one that really highlighted just how serious the crisis is. Yeah, certainly. Um, tell us just a little bit more about, you know, one, what it was like down there. What kind of 
I think that one of the interesting factors was, you know, these senators, particularly not from border states, being present for these kinds of excursions and seeing firsthand what it's like on the border. Um, you know, what were their kind of reactions to these kinds of things? Um, and, you know, tell us a little bit, even just about the photos you were able to take while you were there. Well, I was able to get the the event was very much a, a media event. Okay, it was it was to highlight what is happening on the southern border. So they did not go on their tour right away. They were able to take the boats kind of to the side so that the media could get some footage and and I was able to get a, a some good pictures of the of the boats that they were on and these were Texas Highway Patrol boats not uh, border patrol uh, boats. But if, if you view the, you can go to the article, uh, Cruz Cornyn, 17 other U S senators to a Rio Grande river and heartbreaking border visit and view a couple of those images. Um, but this event highlighted the position of these Republican senators in terms of the Biden white house. And they are, taking Biden to task for what they view to be irresponsible policy choices that have led to an, a spike in illegal immigration. While Democrats argue that Trump left the new administration unprepared and that these trends are mostly being contributed to by violence in Central America and people fleeing those countries and seeking asylum. So that debate continues uh, but this particular border visit, you would think, you know, and I kind of expected when I went down there uh, that there would be, I don't know, a, a dark energy uh, along the border. But I, there really, I, I did not perceive that. I think a lot of this stuff happens just out of view and my limited perception of what has gone on. And while I was down there is so much of, of what goes on is out of our view. And, um, McAllen and that area is, is an, just another community, people working, living, going to school. And, and this is really happening, happening in the periphery of our society right now. Yeah. And it, it is, it's very jarring. Certainly. Well, Hayden, thanks for following that and heading down there for us. Isaiah, we're going to talk to you about the Alamo. This is a beat you've covered extensively. Um, and this last week, you wrote a story about the different proposals, the different legislative proposals that have been introduced in the Texas legislature, uh, specifically addressing the Alamo. Walk us through exactly what these bills are and what they have in common. What they have in common mainly is distaste for the way the Alamo project is currently being run. So to summarize it, an arm of the General Land Office, the GLO, called Alamo Trust, runs the site, day-to-day -day stuff and things like that. And the project itself, the renovation, is a collaboration between the city of San Antonio and the GLO. All of these bills seek to get the legislature more involved in this process. I like it. So, you know, what are the proposals exactly? The Republican bills obviously focus on making sure that the story of the Alamo that we all heard as kids continues to be told emphasizing the heroism of the defenders in the, in the famous siege. A couple of them also focus on securing the safety of the cenotaph. And um, lately that has become kind of irrelevant um, since the Texas Historical Commission has voted to keep the cenotaph in place. That was, you know, months ago. And uh, more recently, George P. Bush of the GLO and, you know, Ron Nirenberg of mayor of San Antonio have acknowledged that it's not moving and they've adjusted their renovation plans to adapt to that. But um, before those developments took place, 
a couple of Republican state reps filed bills to ensure the cenotaph safety in its place. Um, one of them is, uh, we've probably discussed it on a podcast before. Uh, it's from Brian Slayton, Republican out of Royce city. He filed a bill that would effectively keep the Alamo cenotaph safe from removal pretty much permanently. Although it had to do with monuments in general, like place names and other statues and things like that. And it stipulates that if one of those monuments, including the name of, you know, a park or whatever, has stood on state property for more than 40 years, it would be totally safe from removal or change. There's another bill by Sterup Calbiederman out of Fredericksburg, um, which aims more directly at the Cenotaph. It wou't affect other historical monuments, but it would wrest the Cenotaph from the city of San Antonio and place it wholly under the control of the General Land Office, so the state of Texas. Uh, the GLOW would maintain full responsibility for preserving the monument, and any major projects relating to it would have to be approved unanimously by the governor, Lieutenant Governor, Speaker of the Se- Speaker of the State House, and a majority of the members of the THC. And like I said, those two have kind of lost relevance as the Cenotaph's position has been secured. Um, a few that are a little bit more relevant come out of State Senator Jose Menendez, uh, San Antonio's Democrat state senator. He has shown a lot of sympathy to the top Palam Qualtekins. We talked about their their plight before on this podcast. Um, they're uh, involved in a federal legal battle against um, – against the city of San Antonio right now. And um, they are a tribe whose forefathers lived in the missions, including the Alamo. And they want a seat at the table on the archaeological advisor committee, which includes a number of tribes that um, they claim don't bear any historical connection to the Alamo. And uh, they have some other complaints about their um, ability to, re- to worship at the site. So Menendez has filed uh, some bills to, one, recognize them at the state level because they lack federal recognition, which has kind of hamstrung them mm-hmm. and their, their legal process. He has also filed a bill to require consultation with them and any other tribe that claims a historic link to the Alamo before embarking on any major projects on the complex. And uh, so those are a couple from, from Menendez that focus more on, um, on the Tapalam tribe. I like it. Well, Isaiah, thanks for covering that for us. Daniel, we're going to come to you this week. We saw a one-year anniversary of a big date here in Texas. Um, walk us through that and give us you know, a 30,000-foot overview of what COVID numbers have looked like here in Texas. It was not just a big date for Texas, but for the whole country. It was the one-year anniversary of the end of the 15 days to slow the spread. Wow. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um, it was also the one-year anniversary of when Governor Abbott uh, signed his executive order that extended his initial uh, lockdown policy. Now, if you remember back at the time, uh, he was saying it was definitely not a lockdown. It was definitely not a stay-at-home order, but that's basically what it was, and that's (laughs) what we've called it since. Um, Well, you say that was a year ago? That was a year ago. No, that was at least six years ago. Uh, This is a good point. (laughs) I think, like, on on paper, it's kind of like how – the the Senate this morning actually they, they gaveled out on Tuesday morning, even though it was Thursday morning. It's this weird legislative day, actual yeah, day thing. I feel like that's what's going on here. So it's like the real year and then the year of what it felt like. All that to say, it's been one one heck of a year with uh, a roller coaster mm-hmm. of uh, coronavirus numbers and also policies, responses to that. Um, so just a broad 30,000 foot view of how the coronavirus numbers have changed since a year ago. Now, if you remember back a year ago, testing was just getting started. They were kind of struggling to to get the reporting out, uh, in a consistent manner. 
And, uh, but all in all, numbers were really low. We didn't see massive hospitalizations, despite the models saying that that's what we were going to see in like two days, and then it never happened, and then it just kept on never happening. And that that continued uh, throughout much of the spring, uh, up until June uh, was when we started seeing the numbers rise again. They reached a peak in mid to late July, started coming back down again. They continued going down uh, throughout the fall in September and October. And then in October, it kind of took a turn and the numbers started going back up, but at a much slower rate than they did uh, back in June. It was a, a little bit more steady of a climb. Uh, and then that continued climbing throughout most of the winter, reaching a high in uh, pretty early January was when we saw the the next peak. And since then, uh, the numbers really then plummeted, probably likely due to, you know, the, in, in part to the vaccinations, in part to just the natural uh, fluctuation of the virus. But uh, that is where we're at right now. It is back down to uh, numbers that we had seen back uh, last fall, if not now, kind of going into the point where it was during a year ago when there was really little, uh, a lot fewer numbers. And at that point, there was a lot less testing. So um, numerically, we might be lower now than we were then. I like it. So in terms of, you know, Abbott's policies, walk us through a little bit of where those line up with these different trends. Yeah. So uh, like I mentioned, his extension was one year ago, March 31st. Uh, his initial lockdown, uh, he announced that on March 19th. Uh, so since then, uh, you know, you had that month and a half all throughout April of a, a very strict lockdown. There was no dine-in restaurants open. There were no uh, retail stores that were open for, for shopping in the store. Lots of businesses were closed. You know, you had hair salons closed. Uh, and then you started seeing a little bit more pushback from that. People were getting really tired of this by the end of April. Uh, and you had uh, Governor Abbott at the end of April then announced that he was going to be doing a phased reopening. And this phased reopening uh, continued uh, throughout May and into June a little bit of um, just different capacity limits that he was expanding, uh, certain sectors and businesses that he would open uh, while others remained closed kind of this uh, staggered reopening. Uh, at that point, you also had, under his reopening orders, he had in his executive order a, a, a ban on mask mandates for individuals. Um, and then in mid-June, uh, you started seeing the numbers go up a little bit. This was after Memorial Day, after all the George Floyd protests. Um, this is when we started seeing the numbers go up a few weeks after that. And that was in mid-June. You started seeing then uh, local county officials pushing back on Abbott's uh, prohibition on the mask mandate. And uh, they started trying to find ways around that. Uh, the Bear County judge then issued a mandate that was not on individuals, but it was on businesses requiring them to have a mandate on individuals. And after... Uh, the Bear County judge did that. Abbott came out the next day and he's like, yes, that was my plan all along for them to be able to do that and have this, this uh, way to have businesses require masks instead of requiring it on the individual. Fast forward a few more weeks and he 
kind of reels back his reopening policies, uh, not quite to the extent that it was back in April, but still lower capacity limits for businesses. And um, I want to say that bars were allowed to open like at some point in in June, and then they were closed back down. Uh, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, but then, you know, you had the, those renewed lockdown orders, and then right before July fourth, you had the mask mandate implemented. Uh, Texas was the the second state with a Republican governor to issue a statewide mask mandate. Um, and then you saw the numbers peak in uh, mid to late July, uh, and then they started going down. And then Abbott didn't issue any more orders until September when he started expanding uh, the opening capacity again. Now, in this order, he did something different than all of his previous orders, and that was to put a trigger in it that uh, allowed uh, certain capacity limits to be had uh, depending on the level of the virus. So if a health region in Texas, uh, the trauma service area, I believe that's run by the Department of State Health Services. Uh, if those reached over 15% capacity with uh, coronavirus patients in those hospital regions, then uh, they would have stricter lockdowns. So at the time that he did that, there were really not many regions that this applied to. But as the cases continued to grow, and then in January, this was when uh, we saw numbers really high across the state. And that's when all those uh, partial lockdowns kind of went back into effect under his triggered order. There wasn't any new orders that he issued, uh, but there was that existing trigger in his previous order. And then in March, at the beginning of March, he um, ended his statewide mask mandate and full reopening. And the numbers have been continuing to go down uh, despite cries against his policy and warnings that we're going to see, I guess nobody's saying that hospitals are going to overflow again, but now they're saying we're going to see more cases, but I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> there we go. Quite the, quite the situation in the, in the saga and even in the legislature to pivot to another story of yours, Daniel, we've seen, you know, different members of both chambers, the house and the Senate come forward with different ideas of what the right response is in terms of having folks enter the Capitol, the house, the Texas house this week, uh, talked about, um, you know, their mask mandate. What, what happened there? What are the current COVID rules in the legislature? So the current COVID rules in the legislature, if you go to the Capitol, you can go in without a mask. You can go in without a COVID test. If you want to go to anything to do with the Senate, you need both a mask and a COVID test. The COVID tests are being provided uh, at no cost outside of the Capitol building. They give you a wristband after you test negative, and then you can go into those Senate activities. If you want to go into the House committee hearings or if you want to go into the House chamber uh, or the gallery, rather, then you have to have a mask. Now, if there's been some talk about uh, removing that, um, there are several or a couple proposals put forward. One by Representative Brian Slayton, and the other by Representative um, Tom Oliverson, and these would have uh, kind of ended the mask mandate in the in the House. Uh, they were heard in a committee hearing, uh, but uh, after some testimony from uh, a couple health officials, uh, including. Um, a former state representative, um, blanking on his name right John now. John Zerwas. John Zerwas. Uh, his testimony and another testimony from a, a UT health official, uh, they uh, kind of discouraged the committee from taking up this uh, 
or striking down the mask mandate and waiting for another six weeks. And so uh, at the end of that hearing, uh, Oliverson asked the committee to just leave the bill pending for the time being, and that's what they've done. Yeah. So in terms of what the future could hold, basically, mm-hmm. we're just we're just waiting to see. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, if you're going with that six weeks that uh, one of the witnesses said uh, and recommended, then we could see the rule be reconsidered uh, a few weeks before the session gavels out, or it might just continue on toward the end of session. Yeah, certainly. Well, Daniel, thank you for covering that for us. Brad, we're going to come to you. ERCOT electricity and utility situations have been in the news for a hot minute now. And this week, the House moved forward with their proposals. Walk us through what proposals were passed in the Texas House. Yeah, so I've written on them previously and, uh, you know, spelled them out in pretty good detail. But, you know, among the among the most notable ones were um, the weatherization mandate, uh, in-state requirement for uh, residency requirement for ERCOT board members, um, a prohibition on the residential use of wholesale index pricing. Um, That was the the gritty type of um, plan that resulted in thousands of dollar bills and, uh, you know, a few others. So um, I list them out in in the piece we write on this, uh, recommend check it out. But um, now they're moving on to the Senate. Good stuff. Now, between the House and the Senate, are there differences between both chambers in terms of how they're approaching the issue? Yeah, I mean, generally, we're going to see all of the same proposals come through each or come to each. Uh, it's just a question of which ones get passed. Now, there was one passed, um, a related bill passed in the Senate, uh, Senate Bill 3, that's a priority bill. And it has some of the same things like the ma- weatherization mandate, uh, the, that, the prohibition on wholesale index plans, um, also creation of emergency alert system. But there are a couple other differences, um, such as setting a cap, uh, wholesale price cap um, system-wide. And that would just be essentially lowering it. I didn't see a price point, so I don't know if they ha- if that would just be a rule set by the PUC later on. But it's a direction it's a directive to set a different one, um, and prohibiting ancillary ancillary service prices from exceeding 150 percent beyond the wholesale cap. Um, we saw ancillary service prices go up upwards of $26,000 during the event. And those are essentially generation set aside in case we have a situation where we need where we lose generation or um, are stressed with high demand. So there are some differences, uh, mostly similar though. We'll see which one, which one and which ones get the green light in the other respective house. So that's where it is right now. I like it. Well, thanks for covering that for us, Brad. Let's talk budget. One of your favorite things. Oh boy. I, I do love Look budgets. Look at you and your fiscal, your fiscal beats here. The thing is not many other people do. So that's, you know, that <laughs> I'm preaching a, to a very small choir. Here. Well, Brad, there's a reason why it's toward the end of the cast, just for the record. Um, but I it's very slighted. important. Nonetheless, the Senate approved their budget in committee this week. Uh, signaling the beginning of a lot of conversation to be had between both chambers and on their respective floors. Walk us through what this proposal entails. So um, earlier we saw both chambers release very, very similar uh, initial budget plans. And now the Senate has is farther along in the House. They've gotten through committee and this budget proposal will come to the floor next week for a vote. Um, and the total fiscal tag is $250.7 billion. Now, that includes it, discretionary and non-discretionary spending, basically things that the state is mandated to pay for and things that the state can choose to pay for. Um, 
of that discretionary discretionary number though um it, it right now the total is in this plan 117.9 billion now that's just about two billion dollars less than the initial proposal they shaved off uh, 1.8 billion dollars so um that's notable now in the in that context there is still uh, some numbers adjustments that they'll have to make because at least in terms of the uh the comptroller's estimate earlier this year they will have 112.5 billion dollars available for general revenue spending and so there's a gap you know now about a five billion dollar gap there uh, i, I her was told that that will likely be taken care of through federal funding um and so it likely it turns out maybe it won't be that big of an issue, but that was a significant gap going into this. At least it stuck out to me. But the budget, um, you know, certainly compared to last session, which increased fifteen billion dollars, and that was because of the property tax compression and school finance increase. Um, this one is is uh, you know two point six percent growth. It's well under population plus inflation, and so which is kind of the metric that is used for that. I don't know. In terms of Republican conservative lawmakers, uh, if it's under that yes. cap, right, it's acceptable. Yeah. Something to, to look at is the the conservative Texas budget that TPPF puts out every right. year. And they're happy with it, with that fiscal note. Now, I'm sure there's some things in there they wish they, you could switch or whatnot. But the general total, they're OK with. And that kind of tells you how the budget is, um, certainly compared with last sessions. Um, you know, a couple notable um, parts of this. Uh, especially in relation to the, what the uh, legislature did last session, this budget proposal would uh, provide additional $3.1 billion in funding for school enro- enrollment growth. And so that's basically their projection of how much more it's going to cost to fund education um, with more students coming in, which is interesting on the, on the backdrop of a lot of these, a lot of students leaving during the pandemic because uh, schools were shut down. So they went either homeschool or went to online schools and whatnot. So that's interesting, something to watch for. But also uh, there's an additional $1 billion in continued property tax compression. So uh, we'll see rates, local school district tax rates uh, drop a little bit, at least compared to how they would have been otherwise. Certainly. Um, Well, thank you so much for covering that. Now, the House, we're still waiting on on their proposal. Yeah. Right. So where is the House in terms of their budgetary process? They are in the midst of appropriations committee hearings. They held um, quite a few um, subcommittee hearings in which, you know, they hear budget requests for agencies and various other things. They basically the subcommittees do the groundwork. um, That way they're not having however many appropriations committee members all just going at it in in one big committee they they siphon it off different sections of of the budget um siphon it off and they handle it themselves and they come and they have this uh, they they consolidate the plan and then they vote on that and they send it to the floor and of course you have budget night which uh the house members can tack on amendments um all over the place and you know that's going to be its own marathon um but from the original proposals, since we don't know what the House is going to 
the House committee is going to produce. Can't really compare it at the moment, but the original proposals between the two chambers, there's about a $60 million difference. And um, that's various things. And we'll see if they get ironed out. I'm sure some of them will, some of them will not. Uh, likely, as it usually does, this will have to go to conference committee. And in there, you know, the two chambers, chambers will deliberate and, you know, settle on a final budget which is basically after the senate passes their budget and the house passes its budget they'll come together and say okay what parts don't match up let's figure out where we can cut and slash and add so it'll be quite the process and it'll be interesting too to see okay well last session there were big commitments made to property taxes and school finance you know how going forward will that spending be able to be addressed Mm -hmm. um and those kind of commitments continue to be made or or not so um, all sorts of good stuff, Bradley. Thank you for covering that for us. Real fast, I want to talk about um, broadband expansion here in Texas. Just give us a quick overview. This is an issue that um, the governor and different state leaders have been very forthright and seen yeah. as a priority priority of theirs. And we're talking about something that a lot of Republicans don't necessarily know much about yeah. um, and has been criticized by some conservatives saying, hey, we have Republican Party priorities that we want to address this session. Broadband is a focus that you know we don't care as much about. Um, and what's the price tag going to yeah. be on this? So all sorts of different. But you know, by and large, the legislature is, has talked about this for many years. This is not a new topic of conversation. So give us a quick update on yeah. that. Yeah, this is a, it's a priority in both houses um, by the, the respective leaderships there. Um, like you said, it's not on the GOP priority list, but uh, the, for many of the legislators, this is a priority. And, um, you know, it, the pl- two current plans in there right now is to kind of establish this broadband office that would then facilitate the uh, f- actions and directives from the Federal Communications Commission at the you know, federal level. And, uh, facilitating it down to the local level getting uh these these suppliers to providers to you know commit to building the infrastructure for x amount of money whatever so it's going to be very costly estimates that i had that i was given uh if you are if you're laying fiber um rather than sticking solely to like you know 5g which has its own limitations is right there's no good way to get broad internet access out to these incredibly rural sparsed out areas so um the price point that i was given uh, a mile of of uh broadband infrastructure cable would cost uh you know forty five thousand to eighty thousand dollars and just to put in and then an additional uh, and that's per year and an additional sorry that's an initial cost but then you have the maintenance and operations, which is per year, and that would cost between thirty and forty thousand dollars. So this is across the entire state of Texas that doesn't have this. It's a lot of money. Absolutely, and we don't know um, how much that'll be. Yeah, we'll continue to keep an eye on it. The fiscal price tag is going to be quite the topic of conversation. A lot forward. of spending. Yeah, <laughs> yes. but it's government, so we'll just continue <laughs> to keep an eye on it. Um, gentlemen, this week uh, we are very close to the observance of Easter and Good Friday here at the Texan. We observe both and. Uh, just try like try to carve out time for folks to be able to observe those holidays. Um, I want to talk about Easter traditions. Are there things that you and your families did growing up or even that you do now that are fun Easter traditions? I just want to know how the resurrection of Jesus somehow came to be symbolized by a giant rabbit breaking into people's <laughs> homes and leaving <laughs> eggs and candy. I, I I've never looked into that, but I imagine it's a weird winding story. I, yeah. I just, I don't know. So yes, growing up, we did the whole Easter egg hunt, uh, 
basket of candy thing on, on Sunday morning on Easter, but it's never made any sense to me. So I'm still puzzled. (laughs) I'm I'm sure there's a youth pastor somewhere who has made some kind of a metaphor that somehow connects the two. Yes. Youth pastors tend to do that. Yeah. Maybe, maybe some youth pastors can email me and and (laughs) explain this to me. Something about eggs and new life and rabbits because they hop around just like Jesus hopped out of the grave. I don't know. Oh my. <laughs> well, on that note, um, fantastic. I Sermons think, by Daniel. Oh Lord in heaven. One of the traditions we had growing up was, um, obviously Easter egg hunt, but as we got older, my parents were like, well, this is not as fun just to hide the eggs in our yard and, you know, set our teenage children out to the, to the craziness. And we wanted it still. We were like, bring it on. This is a competition now. So what my parents did was hide Easter eggs all over the neighborhood. So like they would get the permission from different people's houses mm-hmm. and we would be able to say, okay, we're going to go in your yard. Like they knew we were coming and we had to run all over and it was outside. <laughs> it was, it was at night. So it was all dark. We had headlamps. We had, you know, we got very creative in terms of how we could have bags uh, attached to our front so we could just throw the eggs in as we found them. It got very intense. Um, we wore tennis shoes, headlamps. It was quite the quite the situation. That was ours. And I love it. And I want to continue. Did it. you ever run into the wrong yard where, like, there's just an old man out there with a shotgun <laughs> get off my lawn? It was Seattle, so probably not. Well, yeah. they like guns up there, surprisingly. It depends. Yeah, well... That's a whole other thing. The, the laws are actually very lenient, but I don't think Washingtonians uh, who lean left know that very yeah. much. It's kind of the best kept secret up there. Brad, do you have any traditions? I mean, obviously, Easter egg hunting. That's Classic. a big one. Uh, trying to find baskets in the morning. Uh, but my favorite pastime oh dear. of Easter is trashing peeps. They are gross. That's very true. Yes. Does anybody disagree with that? They are gross. Sarah White disagrees wholeheartedly. She's raising her hand. Well, she doesn't have a microphone. Sarah is both morally and factually incorrect. Sarah, please explain to us. Wow. Hello, everybody. (laughs) I mean, I have already had two to three packages of peeps this season. (laughs) We'll probably buy more this weekend. Um, I just, I don't know. I, I so you're already, the person who keeps that company afloat. It's, it's okay. true. Yeah. It's probably me and I'm okay with that. I accept it. I own it and I run with it. I think they're delicious. They're just sugar and marshmallow and I love them. Why don't you just eat regular marshmallows? <laughs> regular marshmallows are also good, but the difference with peeps is they're covered in just straight up more sugar. So it was already great and then it just made it a fantastic product honestly i like the way they taste i just they're so messy to eat like especially the ones with bright colors like you're eating a bright pink or a bright yellow peep and by the end of it you've got like yellow sugar all over you they're very messy they're messy and they're huge they're not like bite size i mean i'm sure there are bite size peeps but they're not even a good size to just yeah eat i like bite size candy like reese's where you can just (laughs) don't get me started i'm I'm gonna call her out because she doesn't listen to this i'm sure uh but my mom she does this very odd thing where she lets them out or opens them the peeps and lets them get stale and then eats them wow and it is purposefully that's kind of kind of nasty yeah wow one of my closest friends in college is that way so we'll even to this day send them to her weeks ahead of time and then like three weeks later she'll send a thanks they were great wow 
like, what? Wow. I don't understand yeah. that that allure it's whatsoever. Disgusting. Well, folks, thanks for that. That was a delight. Sarah, thank you for joining us. Um, folks, enjoy your Good Friday. Happy Resurrection Day. And we'll talk to you next week. Thank you all so much for listening. If you've been enjoying our podcast, it would be awesome if you would review us on iTunes. And if there's a guest you'd love to hear on our show, give us a shout on Twitter. Tweet at the Texan News. We're so proud to have you standing with us as we seek to provide real journalism in an age of disinformation. We're paid for exclusively by readers like you, so it's important we all do our part to support the Texan by subscribing and telling your friends about us. God bless you, and God bless Texas. Texas.